All right, the title of the sermon today is Two Ways to Build. I want to read from Matthew 7. These are the last words in red in my Bible in Matthew 7. Starting in verse 24, God's word says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came up and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that as we approach your word, that we would submit to your word and be changed by your word, because we know it is powerful and alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, where we submit our lives, Jesus to you, as we know that you, these are the last things that you said in this sermon, and we know that your heart was full of intentions for your people through this sermon, through your power. So speak to us, Jesus, you have full reign to speak to every one of us today, challenge us, convict us where needed, encourage us where appropriate. Spirit of God, we invite you to come and do just that. Amen. Amen. So I was um, probably like six, maybe five, six, seven years old. I can't exactly remember, but I was taught a song in my version of children's ministry back then, and this was for sure in the 1970s, and we sang it just a thousand times, and it goes a little something like this. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Anybody know it? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Sing it out. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the flood came, rain, yeah, exactly. Keep going. And the rains came down, and the floods came, right? Okay, let's not torture everybody who doesn't know this song. Okay, if you don't know the song, it had hand motions built on the rock, rains came down, rain came tumbling down. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? But it's interesting that, that this song was written by Anne Omley in 1948. It's almost 75 years old, which shows us once again the, the power of song, the power of music, the power to retain because of music, shows us why what we sing is so important in terms of what we learn. But it's interesting, this song, you, you can't obviously pack all of, of Jesus' teaching here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount into a simple, catchy children's sing song, but it, it actually, the song does make a mistake that is pretty classic. It's a mistake that many make about this text, and I'll show you what I mean, but, but we do find that Jesus is concluding his most famous sermon here, which means that we should pay very close attention. These are the last things that Jesus is saying that will be recorded, inspired by his Holy Spirit for every generation of, of people to come, believers to come. We should, we should pay very close attention to the invitation and to the chance to respond to all that Jesus has been teaching us. There is a, a therefore at the beginning of our text, a then, that shows us that that Jesus is now going to apply this in the form of some, some invitations and some warnings. All of this is going to 
to, to come alongside the, the question of which will you choose that has already come to us in these contrasts in the previous section. Which will you choose comes to us once again. There's a pointed invitation. And, and all of this is alongside, by the way, the glory or the horror that is to come based on what you choose, based on what you do with Jesus and his word. So let's pay very close attention to the two ways to build, the two houses, the two foundations, and the two eternal destinies. That's what's going on here. And we'll start with, with the illustration that we just started to sing about. You probably know this, and it's, it's similar world round, around, but in Israel, especially around the Sea of Galilee, the upper layer of ground is mostly uh, sand and dirt. But during the hot months, something happens where where that becomes incredibly hard and, and stable. But the mistake would be to, to build your, your house on that sand, even though the illusion leads you to believe that your house is going to be sturdy, and it might be for a little while. We know that if, if hurricanes come or, or squalls off the Sea of Galilee or or flooding rains or howling windstorms that begins to loosen the dirt in the sand and the sand and dirt would, would soften and shift and houses would indeed or could indeed come crashing down. This is, this is the illustration from everyday life that Jesus is drawing their attention to. And I think we know about this because we live on the coast. We actually have sand. We, we have a beach nearby and we've all seen and, and heard those pile driver machines, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's just like, skunk, skunk, you know? It's, it's, it's their attempt to get through the sand and to find the bedrock. Because if you don't, we, we know what happens. Matter of fact, I found a picture of, of a house from Rodanthe. This is just two months ago. This is down in Outer Banks, Rodanthe, and she gone, right? I mean, look at that. That's just horrible. And the thing is, is that that's nothing really new. We see these things. But here's the thing. When you think about the, the sand, you think about the rock, the mistake is to immediately say that the foundation that Jesus is talking about here is himself. Now, the foundation in this illustration technically is not Jesus, actually. And, and that's not to say that Jesus isn't our rock it's not to say that he isn't our firm foundation or the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the rock of ages. But the contrast is not build your life on Jesus equals rock and build your life on anything else besides Jesus equals sand. Because if you read the text, if you look at it, in both cases, the technical foundation is the same. Look at them side by side. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And what's the contrast? Everyone who hears these words of mine. It's the same opportunity for both. The same foundation-ish, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The contrast is between those who hear these words, Jesus' words, and does them, and those who hear these words, Jesus' words, and does not do them. The contrast is between listening to and obeying Jesus and his word versus what anyone else says. 
You have heard it said. Do you remember how Jesus said that six times in chapter 5? You have heard it said, but I say. In other words, Jesus is for sure contracting, contrasting his words versus anyone else's words. But in the context, Jesus is for sure contrasting his words, his life-giving word. Contrasting that to the dead religion taught and lived by the Pharisees, for example. But even the Pharisees' words versus Jesus' word, that's not technically the contrast. In both sections, the contrast is about Jesus' words and what you do with them. The contrast is all about being a Jesus follower who actively listens to and does what he says. The houses on the foundations, that's a picture of a result of something. The result of a process, the result of a kind of building and a kind of house that either withstands the storms and floods or it doesn't. So how are you going to build your life? This is what Jesus is asking you and me. This is what he's presenting to us. How are you going to, how are you building your life right now? And the right answer in this text is not, I'm building my life on Jesus. And that just sounds so weird to say, right? Because in the end, I'm saying technically, but in the end, Jesus is always the right answer in church, right? So yes, we can say building your life on Jesus. But that's way too broad, for what Jesus is actually getting at here as he closes the application section of his sermon. The right answer here is, how, how am I building my life? My whole life? My Monday through Friday? And Saturday and Sunday life? My work life? My family life? My church life? My leisure life? And everything in between? How am I building my life? I listen to and obey Jesus. That's the right answer here. And if that is how you answer that question about the center of your life, about the core of your being, about your heart, about the driving motivation and passion of your life, if that sits there, not perfectly, we're going to find, but if you say, yes, indeed, that is what I live my life for. Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then you are like a man who is building his house on a rock. That's what you're doing. You are building your house on a rock. And it will be safe and secure, durable and enduring into eternity. But if not, you're building your life on sand. And the rains and the floods and the winds will come. But great will be the fall of it. And when we get this picture of wind and rain and floods, that's, that, that speaks to judgment. Because in the ancient Near East, for sure, storms and crazy weather was often thought of as just straight judgment. That the gods are angry with us. They must be. Or, or God is judging us with the chaos that exists in the severity of this flood. And Jesus uses that, that image here. 
that the rains and winds and, and floods come. And, and by the way, I do believe, Alex mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that, that that could be in this lifetime. That if those floods and wind and rain reveal to you what you've been building or I've been building on sand and, and God lets it fall in a great way, that then is his mercy to you in this lifetime. Because in the end, Jesus is talking about the final judgments. The judgment at the end of time that everyone breathing God's air will one day show up to. And how you lived and how you built will determine in that moment you see God with your eyes. That, that how you built your life will determine your eternal destiny. The flood and the storm of God's wrath, if you have gone it alone in your pride, rejecting Jesus as your Savior, that wrath will demolish and sweep you away. At the center of it all is what are you going to do with Jesus and what he says. There are only two foundations. There are only two ways to build. There are only two kinds of houses. And there are only two eternal destinies. That is certainly what Jesus is getting at with this illustration. And I, I think we can wrap our minds around that. But I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Because if Jesus closes this entire sermon with a confrontation and an invitation that all surrounds his words, right? It's his words. Here's these words of mine and does them. That's what is at the center of all of this. Then, then what, what is it about his word? Can we kind of unpack what that actually means and dig a little bit deeper into what that looks like when we are interacting with Jesus' words? What exactly are we interacting with? I think that's a good question to ask. And I think, I, I find at least three things. The first is that the words of Jesus contain authority. Authority and truth. If all of our eternities are hanging on what we do with Jesus' words, then let's understand some things about Jesus' words. And the first is that they contain authority. Because God's word always has authority over us. This is what we believe about this book. The revelation of God, inspired, spoken, and, and preserved for us. The authority of Scripture means that God has so revealed himself and so spoken to us that to listen to and obey his word is to listen to and obey God. That's what we believe about the authority of God's word. And so this is what Jesus is saying because he's the son of God. He is God the son. His words have authority over us. Everyone who listens to and obeys my words. Look, if you are a, a Christian and you live for Jesus, I guess the thing we all need to know is that that's not ultimately subjective, just subjective. It's not just this, this mystical, abstract, subjective thing that is kind of different for everybody, if you're honest. Okay? How everybody 
approaches and pursues a relationship with Jesus is as different, maybe you could say, as every uh, person here or watching us online. And there's a part of it that that, that is, is true. But there's also a part of that that's just not true. There's an objective nature to being a Christian. And it includes listening to and following and obeying Jesus' words, all of them. There is not a kind of self-test that we can give anybody about your relationship with Jesus because we're not your judge. I'm not your judge. That's up to you, between you and God. But there is an objective test that we can give ourselves about the reality of Christ in us, the reality of what it really means to follow Jesus on his terms, according to him, not according to me or according to whoever led you to the Lord or whatever churches you've been to. Look, Jesus' words have authority because they're true. His word is truth, which means that that we need to take all of his words, certainly in, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, and evaluate ourselves. Are we building on rock based on just these three chapters? And by the way, don't, don't cut out the last four or five paragraphs. Do we take seriously the warning of judgment to come that Jesus talks about? I do think that Jesus has the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount with regard to his authority and commands in view, but consider how he has closed his sermon. If the wide path leads to destruction, if the tree that bears bad fruit is thrown into the fire, and if Jesus says, depart from me eternally, And then here he alerts us to a cataclysmic and destructive storm that sweeps us away. Look, Jesus is warning about hell. I never would have thought in my lifetime that hell would be a controversial subject. I know it's an unpleasant subject, but I never thought controversial, meaning, yeah, there probably isn't a hell. Probably not. Maybe but a large swath of evangelicalism that just simply has has chopped that off. This is how Don Carson weighs in, I think thoughtfully, intelligently. He says, either there is a hell to be shunned or there is not. Kind of refreshing, isn't it? Either there is a Hell to be shunned or there is not. If there is not, then Jesus' entire credibility is shattered. For he himself speaks twice as often of hell as of heaven. The pages of the Bible strain metaphor and exhaust the resources of language in describing the holy delights of the new heaven and the new earth, still to come. But they scarcely do less in outlining the horrors and terrors of hell. 
It is variously described as the place of outer darkness, the place where the worm will not die, the place of exclusion and rejection, the place of burning and torment, the place where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. So I cannot describe hell except in the metaphors of Scripture, but those metaphors are staggering, he says. And and maybe this is where you check out at the mystery and paradox of a loving God who has wrath. But isn't the the irony so striking that to reject such a loving Jesus because of his words about the judgment to come is to build your life on sand and experience alone that judgment to come Filled with his wrath. Look, Jesus is is never trying to scare anyone into his kingdom, to scare people with hell, any more than you would say that if a fire broke out in your house and I was banging on the door to wake you up and to get you to safety, that you accused me of scaring you into safety. Who would say that? You would never say that. Maybe you know this or don't, but I believe that I came to Christ, a genuine, regenerated, born-again Christian, when I was a boy. I couldn't point to a date or a time. My life was, was immersed in church life and, and fellowship and community. Again, this is the 1970s when the Jesus movement had happened and young people all around the country uh, there, was, there was a move of the Spirit, and God was sweeping people into his kingdom, and there was a lot of life in those days. So we, we kind of grew up, grew up in a home and in a church was, was what, what my childhood was like. And I will tell you that I believe I was probably saved because of my fear of hell. I think that that's probably true. Now, there would be a lot more to the open horizons of what Salvation and life with Jesus would look like. But Jesus uses his life and his work and his word to save all of it, including his warnings. And how could you or I ever condemn the motive of the person trying to warn us of horror to come, saying that they are trying to scare us if indeed that horror is coming? It's as if I was the boy and Jesus was knocking on the house on fire and saying, Eric, get out of there, because I was scared to die of fire. That's within God's prerogative to use his warnings to save. Building your life in kind of a piecemeal way is just so risky, isn't it? If you begin to build your life away from what Jesus teaches you himself and through his apostles in his word, it just is so dangerous saying there is no hell to be avoided or to expand it saying that I can certainly take loving God but not so much my neighbor saying that I could take vibrant community 
love it, but not witnessing to others. That I can take parts of my life and ask, did God really say? And then actually live and do the opposite of what Jesus actually said. As if saying he didn't mean that. I'm going to live my life the exact opposite of what he condemns. And to say that you're building on rock, that's just so, so risky. Now, I'm not talking about the fight against sin and our desires to reject the sin that so easily entangles us. I'm, I'm saying that, that you, you're saying that Jesus is wrong. And I'm going to go a different direction. Jesus' words contain truth and authority. Listen, you and I are either under his authority, in his kingdom, ruled by his word, all of it, or not. That's the contrast. His words have authority. Secondly, the words of Jesus contain commands to be obeyed. I hope this is a natural outflow. What what is hearing and doing the words of Jesus mean and look like? Well, certainly submitting to their truth and authority in general, but then obeying what they command and invite in specific. All throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, we've been given these invitations, certainly commands, but there's been a lot of invitations. But what do you, what do you call an invitation that's really not optional? Right? I mean, that's kind of it tends to lead towards uh, a command or a requirement. And I think that's, that's what we get in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we're invited to certain things and commanded certain things, those certain things are meant to be obeyed. And if you just take the broad swaths of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at this more next week, but you think about the identity, the Beatitudes, blessed are the, the meek, the poor, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the persecuted. The invitation there slash command is to live your life out of that identity and not the identities that come to us through the world. Are you going to or not? Or do you want to chop that section of it out because... There's a, whole, there's a whole modern American cultural beatitudes that most people are living their lives to. You can think about Christ-likeness from the heart instead of just outward holiness, but Christ-likeness from the heart. Are you going to take the, the heart issues on board your life and evaluate your life with regard to adultery and anger and oaths and divorce? His invitations are meant to be accepted and obeyed. You can think about our acts of worship. Are they going to be for the eyes of our Father alone? Or are they going to be to impress others? Look, the invitation is, is meant to be accepted and obeyed. Are we going to fight to love God and his kingdom more than money? Are we going to fight to trust God in every condition of our lives, believing that he cares for us more than flowers and the birds? Are we, going to try, are we going to believe him there so that when anxieties creep up in our lives, we have got somewhere to go? Because the command there is an actual command, do not be anxious about your life. And, and that's a besetting sin for me. 
I feel like I, I swim in the pool called anxiety and, and drown in it sometimes. But Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. That's a, an opportunity to obey by seeking to cling to and believe that my heavenly Father sees all of my days and has perfectly provided for every single one of them. Right? That's what he's calling us to. Actively loving others more than ourselves, rejecting the wide path of worldly compromise, rejecting false teachers who, who direct us to the wide path instead of the narrow path. You see, the whole Sermon on the Mount is, contains invitations and commands to be obeyed. That's what Jesus is closing with. Jesus certainly is the one better than Moses, greater than Moses, who went onto a mountain to deliver his will for his people. And his will is a, a kind of life transformed where your righteousness actually exceeds that of the Pharisees. Not in perfection. Remember, not in perfection because we have the Lord's Prayer at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord's Prayer, it contains certainly the duality of our lives as sinners and saints in the prayer itself, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. Lord, please let your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. Yes, that's the desire that we have. But then forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sin. If perfection were possible, that wouldn't be in the prayer. But indeed it is. Jesus' words contain commands to be obeyed. Everyone who listens to these words of mine and does them. Look, there are only two ways to build. There's only two houses. There are only two foundations, and two eternal destinies. And how you obey Jesus' commands will tell. But I'd like to spend the last bit of our time on the key, I think, to it all with regard to Jesus' words. And that's this third thing, that the words of Jesus in relationship with Jesus contain power. And isn't that good news? Like at this point, the words of Jesus in relationship with Jesus contain power. Not only does the word of God powerfully bring into being things that are not out of nothing, not only do the dead rise and the lame walk and the blind see simply at the word of Jesus, but Jesus's word also comes with power to obey when he lives in you. This is the glory and the power of real Christianity. Jesus himself, Christ in us. Let me ask you, how are you and I going to build this way? It can't possibly be in our own strength, right? It's not like Jesus says these things and then, okay, good luck with that, everyone. Heaven or hell lies in the balance with your desire and ability to listen to me and what I say and to do it, do it all. Look, Jesus knows 
that in order for us to truly do these things, we need him. We can truly, honestly say to Jesus. I can picture him walking a Sermon on the Mount. He's Great will be the fall of it. He doesn't call the worship team, the prayer team. Great will be the fall of it. So do you imagine like Peter, James, and John, his three, his, the three amigos, kind of go up to him. It's like, okay, good sermon. Good, good, good. Um, so in order to do all of that, we're going to need your help, Right? And wouldn't Jesus say, exactly, exactly. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, the point of of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. If we say, so so Jesus, with, with regard to this lifetime building project, do you think that that you can help me? And Jesus said, yeah, kind of the point, kind of the point of why I came. Jesus might say that, that's why I humbled myself to become one of you. That's why I'm going to die on the cross and take all of your failures upon myself so that when you pray, forgive me my trespasses, I will. And I'm going to rise again in victory. We just celebrated this Last week, and I'm going to put my spirit in you to indwell you and to empower you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to give you a hammer and say good luck with that. The glory of true Christianity is Christ in us. Christ with us. This is the whole point of true Christianity. Look, Christianity is about all of Christ for all of life, in all of life. Every other, every other religion is relationshipless. This is what we know. Every other religion is relationshipless. And damn you if you make the gospel of Jesus Christ like any other religion. Because it's not relationshipless. It's the whole point of it is to be reconciled to God and to be filled with God. It's no longer, we're no longer an I who live. We are a Christ who lives in me person equals new creation. Right? That's, that's the point of true Christianity. And what's so sad to me is I think that some people are introduced to Christianity or experience Christianity, but never enter into a relationship with Jesus himself. That's why so many, I think, in the end reject Christianity, because they never got Jesus. Certainly they got the rules, certainly they got the narrow way and the restrictions and the politically incorrect positions that you must adopt, and they certainly got the 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 obey command, but left Jesus out of all of it. Look, you can even hang around the goodness and good vibes of Christianity, but isn't the, the chilling reality of what Alex preached on two weeks ago, the phrase, I never knew you. Spend your whole life here. 
orbiting around good things and, and maybe building a good life morally. And like the people and like the friends. But if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ where you have believed on him and been saved and, and, and you are born again by his spirit that lives within you, that's why there's going to be so many surprises on that day. A lot of surprises. I don't think really that people, most people reject Jesus if he himself has appeared to you. I think most people reject Christianity that is void of Jesus. Look, with Jesus, he says, remember his words, he says, my yoke is easy. And it is light. Why? Because God is in that yoke with you. If you've got Thor helping you with any feat of strength, and it's the two of you, you're probably going to win, right? If you're in a yoke with God in it with you, Jesus says it's easy, it's light. But if you take God out of that, if you put the yoke of Christianity on you without Jesus, it will crush you. How, how amazing that not only will it crush you, but, but Christianity itself will become so unattractive to you and distasteful to you, such that you need to go online and tell everybody you've ever known that I'm not that anymore, right? when all along you probably just never knew Jesus or had Jesus. And I know that, that leaders and, and churches mess that up, and for that we all have regrets. I want the best thing about our church to be Jesus. Amen? Because it's in him that we have life and truth. It's in him that we have joy and all that our hearts long for, and it's in him that we have power to obey and do the words of Christ. Think about a lifetime, a lifetime of humility and meekness and mourning and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A lifetime of sinning but confessing and repenting every time. A lifetime of striving for peace, peacemakers, loving others as yourself, heart-based and heart-motivated holiness. Imagine a lifetime of faithfulness to an exclusive covenant in marriage between one man and one woman, serving, giving, loving, and, and then a lifetime of rejecting anger but embracing generosity, a lifetime of giving your money away because that's what Jesus says to do. A lifetime of kindness and love and others' focus, rejecting racism, rejecting sexism and classism and ageism and homophobia and other political party memberophobias, but instead of actively and aggressively loving folks like Jesus did, but not compromising on the sin like Jesus did. Do unto others as you would have done to you. Who here condemns you? Neither do I, does Jesus say, in his love and compassion and mercy. But go and sin no more. 
in his truth and in his holiness. Imagine a a lifetime of practicing our worship for the eyes of our Father alone. Who care who else sees or hears? Imagine a lifetime of trusting God our Father, asking and seeking and knocking, believing that he loves us and cares for us. How does a lifetime of building like that happen? I'm going to tell you only through Jesus in you. It's not going to happen in your own strength. Look, this is supernatural. This is otherworldly. But that's exactly who Jesus is and why he came. To save us and redeem us. And then a crown on top of it all. And I'm going to use that in you as the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. We will obey his words only by his power in us and because of our great love for him. Look, you, you want to serve and, and make happy and obey someone that you love very much. It's hard to serve gladly and obey And love, simply a a list of rules. The difference is Jesus is a person, not just an idea, not just a philosophy. Jesus is a person who loves us, who loves you, and gave his life for you. And when you believe in his name, he, he dwells within you. That's how it's gonna happen. And again, I I think this is proven in the Lord's Prayer that sits in the the very center. Let's look at it one more time together. We pray for things we want. We pray for things we need. So it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That You're praying to a person for all of those things. How, in you, how can you and I be the men and women who build our lives on the rock with a lifetime of listening to and obeying Jesus' words, well, it's only in relationship with the one who powerfully created the universe and decidedly defeated sin and death and who lives in you and me, causing us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you think Jesus walked away with his whoever, three, three buddies, I guess, and said, do you, do you think anybody's going to connect that I was a carpenter for 30 years of my life before all of this? And I just ended my Sermon on the Mount with a building illustration. You think anybody's going to connect that? I'm telling you to build your life, build your house on the rock. Guess what I did for 30 years? I built stuff. Guess who's available to help you to build on the rock? That is indeed Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself.
So if you are following Jesus, how do we apply this? Worship team, you can come. We'll bring this to an end. Well, you, we all should ask, how am I building my life? That's, just, that's the question Jesus confronts us with. Whether you're a believer, a follower of Jesus or not. Do you hear and listen to and obey the words of Jesus? Not perfectly. Thank God for the, the Lord's prayer in there. But listening, hearing, and, and obeying the words of Jesus, does that phrase categorize the core and passion and goal of your life? Where has that chilled or softened? Or where do you think you're drifting away from the clear commands of Jesus that come with his power to obey? What do you, what do you believe Jesus is saying to you right now? I think that's what Jesus would want. Consider, think about your life. If we listen and, and obey him, then we're building rightly. Or your life, great, will be the fall of it. And your eternity will be filled with horror. Let us all respond to Jesus today, amen? Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear these words of yours, to believe them, to listen to you, to be led by you. What if there's someone here who is not known by you, would you make yourself known to them? To be known by you, to know you, this is eternal life. This is life. Lord, would you save today? Jesus, we thank you for your leadership and your love and your courage and your power. I pray that none of us will be the same having encountered this sermon. Lead us forward, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.